once again on behalf of the elders of Emmanuel Baptist Church, welcome. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope and pray that uh, you have come here to truly seek the Lord and that you've come to worship in spirit and in truth. We're continuing our journey, if you will, through the book of Ephesians. And so if you would take a copy of scriptures and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And we will read together starting in verse 7 through verse 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of God, and may his people say, Let's pray. Our Father and our glorious God, Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this is your word, not man's. And so we pray that you would send it forth with the power of your Holy Spirit. That you would teach us these wonderful truths about Christ, about his church. We thank you for the love with which he loves us. And we pray that we could reciprocate in like kind a loving obedience to our wonderful Savior and King, our triune God. For it's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in chapters 1 through 3 of this book of Ephesians, Paul has showed us many wonderful truths about who Christians are in Christ Jesus. Have you gotten that yet? Have you been seeing that? about what it means to be united by faith to Christ. What a glorious reality. Paul has painted a glorious picture of what it means. In chapters 4, Paul now starts the application of these wonderful realities, these wonderful truths. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, Paul sets forth the call for Christians to walk worthy. This can only be accomplished as the church walks together in, Christ, in Christian unity. You can't walk worthy by yourself. You can't walk worthy on an island by yourself. You can only walk worthy as a Christian in Christian unity, in the bonds of Christ within the church. There is only one true church, one true body of Christ, even though it is manifested in and through many local congregations. 
In verse 7, Paul lets us know that there is also diversity in the body. And this is evidenced by the many different gifts that Christ has given to the members of the body. Each one of you has a gift, if not multiple gifts, that Christ has given you. And that is not so you can go out and start a business. It's not so you can be successful in the world or be talented. But it's so you can serve Christ in the church. The gifts Christ gives are for the church, as, as I hope we will see. And this morning, Paul is going to list for us several specific gifts that Christ has given the church. And, and the reason for those gifts. And these, these gifts come to us from Christ. But, but we see in the passage that we looked at last week, how how Christ was able to send these gifts. You see, he he became a man. He he through the incarnation, he became a man, fully God yet fully man. He lived the perfect life, as we saw in the Psalm, right? Psalm fifteen this morning. He lived the perfect life. Not not one small iota of a transgression of God's law. He perfectly kept the law and fulfilled it. And he did that for you and for me. Because we can't. Because we won't. And then he died in our place. And he was buried. And three days later he rose from the grave in victory and in power and glory. And he appeared to many witnesses. So that they could be eyewitnesses of his resurrection. And then he ascended to uh, as the, as the bible says above the heavens he ascended to to god's heaven in other words he's not living on some planet out in space somewhere behind some star that we can't see but he's in god's heaven but he's not just existing now in heaven but he has been highly exalted. He has been given a name that is above every name. A name that every tongue should confess. And a name that one day every knee will bow before Christ. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's not just sitting there with his hands folded on his lap. Watching history unfold. But the Bible tells us he ever lives to make intercession for us. He is in his prayerful ministry now, praying for us, speaking to his Father about us and for us. And because of that, now, he and the Father have sent the Holy Spirit in a way that has never been sent in the history of the planet. Yes, the Old Testament saints were saved through the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Yes, they were indwelt with the Holy Spirit as New Testament believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. But there was an outworking of the Holy Spirit in such a way after Christ's ascension and exaltation that has never been seen in this earth. And it is for the advancement of His kingdom. Because no longer is His kingdom comprised of a physical nation but of a spiritual nation that includes people from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation. All those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And Christ loves His church. Consequently, so should you. <laughs> if, if you call yourself a Christian, you ought to love what Christ loves. And Christ loves His church. And we see that in the fact that He gave Himself for her. Christ loves His bride. And as such, He lavishes on His bride wonderful gifts. From His love, He lovingly gives these gifts to His bride, to His church. It is my hope and prayer that we will see and appreciate what Christ is doing for His church and what He will accomplish. 
His goals for us and through us so that we will be stronger in our faith and in our love for one another. As we walk in unity of purpose, may we see King Jesus' glorious kingdom advance here in Jessup and in our surrounding counties. In the counties, we have what, seven, six or seven counties represented in this room right now. And we would love to see Christ's kingdom advance in all those counties. And one day, hopefully sooner rather than later, (laughs) we can see churches planted from Emmanuel Baptist, churches planted in these other counties and watch the kingdom spread. Wouldn't that be glorious? It's never our purpose to grow a, a mega church here in Jessup so that we would fill up this entire property with a building. It's our purpose to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and grow in numbers until we can plant another biblical church over there and then over there and then over there and, 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 and see those churches grow to where they can start planting churches. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I pray that would happen in my lifetime. And I pray that we would all be here to see it and praise God for it. May we see what Christ is doing in His church. May we be appreciative of His gifts. May we use them for His glory. I plan to present this passage in two parts. Um, The first part is the gifts that Christ gives, and the second part is the reason that He gives them. Speaking, starting in verse 11... It speaks of the gifts, the specific gifts now that Christ has given and is giving to his church. And then we will consider each one separately and and take a look at those gifts. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. A lot of people argue that these are all offices in the church. Um... In the context here, they're gifts. And we'll leave it there. We won't argue that they're all offices. But they are gifts. Some Bible scholars would argue that there are five separate gifts here. But I would argue there are four separate gifts. Being that shepherd and teacher is one and the same. And I hope to later on show that to you. We will look briefly at each one and discuss what they mean today. The chief thing to keep in mind is that these are gifts of the resurrected Lord to His church. If we despise the gifts, we despise the giver of the gifts. The first one is apostles. From the Greek word apostolos, which defined means... One sent as a messenger or agent, the bearer of a commission, a messenger. Simple enough, is it not? If we use this definition only, if we define that Greek word and just stick with that definition today, as some do, without looking at the biblical use and definition, then we could erroneously claim to have apostles today. Could we not? I mean, is not a pastor a messenger? There are some denominations who claim to have apostles that have apostolic authority. They don't. To avoid these errors, we must stick with the Bible's definition of apostle. And how it is used. We see in Luke chapter 6. And when day came, he, being Jesus, called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. So an apostle is chosen personally and commissioned by Jesus in person. Okay? Not in some thought that you might have or dream that you might have, or premonition, or whatever you want to call it. 
None of us can say the Lord has called me to be an apostle. Well, how can I say that? Well, let's go keep going. Let's look at Acts chapter 1. You remember, they're, they're all gathered in the upper room. Upper room, They're waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them to wait. And while they're there passing the time in prayer and fasting, Peter brings up a good point. He says, look, one of us is missing. Christ appointed 12 apostles. But Judas turned out that he wasn't one he betrayed the lord and what did he do he he committed suicide he killed himself and so peter is saying this so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the lord jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of john until the day when he was taken up from us one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection so there's two uh, two things in view here now. One, this person to serve as an apostle must have walked with Christ and been part of his earthly ministry, right? Uh, two, he must have been an eyewitness of the resurrection. So the biblical definition of an apostle is that he is personally appointed and sent by Christ. <clears throat> He walked with Christ during Christ's earthly ministry. And three, he had seen the resurrected Christ in person so as to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. The signs of true apostleship now were the supernatural abilities performed in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Healing of the sick, raising of the dead, and so forth. Okay, Not everybody does those things. Not everybody did those things. Okay, those were apostolic gifts that were performed with the authority and in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. So it is biblically safe to say there are <clears throat> no apostles today. The apostle Paul was, I believe, <clears throat> an exception he did not walk with Christ during Christ's earthly ministry. However, he was an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord. Remember his encounter on the road to Damascus. That wasn't a vision. It wasn't a dream. Jesus of Nazareth appeared to him. And also he was sent by Christ. He was commissioned by Christ. He was sent forth as an apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul's apostolic authority is not to be questioned. Although many questioned it, and Paul spent his life and ministry vigorously defending his apostleship. In his own words, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, Christ, appeared also to me. <clears throat> For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. In his own estimation, he wasn't worthy to be called an apostle, but he embraced his apostleship. He didn't deny it. He embraced it. And he asserted his apostolic authority. That's how we have these many uh, uh, wonderful writings. It's this letter that we're looking at here this morning was penned by the Apostle Paul and the authority of Christ to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So Christ gave to His church apostles. Are you saying, well, if He gave them in the past and they were a gift, why doesn't He still give them? I think Paul answers that earlier on in this book when he says the apostles and the prophets are what? The foundation on which the church is built with Christ as the cornerstone. So they were a gift. We are built on that foundation. The foundation of the prophets is what? What is the foundation of the apostles? The word. The word which they preach and the word which we have written in scripture. And Christ, <clears throat> who is the word of God, is the cornerstone.
Then we have prophets, which is the next gift mentioned. <clears throat> the Greek word prophetes is used in Scripture, and I'm sure, Brother Drew, you'll correct all my pronunciations afterwards. Is <laughs> used some 144 times in Scripture, and it has varied meanings. One of the general meanings is a spokesman for another. Simple enough, right? Specifically, a spokesman or interpreter for a deity, also called a seer. It can also mean a divinely commissioned and inspired person, a prophet in the Christian church, a person gifted for the exposition of divine truth, and finally, a prophet, a foreteller of the future. So in some sense, we could say we still have prophets today. We hope that pastors, as they rightly proclaim the gospel, are gifted to do that, to, to, to exhort the Christians from the word of God, to exposit divine truth. However, we do not have prophets in the sense that men are divinely inspired. And what, what do I mean by divinely inspired? When we talk about, oh, I'm, I'm inspired by this word, is that a divine inspiration? It's a divine word. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit enlightens us. But when I say divine inspiration, I mean I can't sit here and start teaching you the 17th book of the mark okay i can't give you new revelation i can't pace back and forth on this on this stage and and say you know god's going to send me something no we have god's revelation here and it is enough and it is sufficient and we don't need new revelation because God has given us the complete writ of Scripture. And so we don't have prophets that foretell the future now. There's no prophets today. Prophets were that in that sense ended with the with the age of when the age of the apostles ended. And so we don't have prophets in that sense anymore. Nor are they needed. Because we have the answers here. God has told us the future. We have it in His book. And God has given gifts to His church. Men who can explain these things. The apostles and prophets that Paul is speaking of here, I believe, are the same that he was speaking of in chapter 2. Let me read from chapter 2 of Ephesians. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians two nineteen through 21 now, I don't know if any of you have ever built a building. But you start by building a building with the foundation, do you not? Now, what goes on top of the foundation? Another foundation? And then another foundation? No. You have one foundation. And then you have the building. And Paul's picture here in Ephesians 2 is that you have the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The ones he's speaking of here, I think, in in, in Chapter 4, the apostles and prophets. And then on top of that is built the holy temple. What is the holy temple? The Christian church. Not, not a, a physical building, not, not a building built with hands, but a spiritual building. And then it comes to evangelists. Now this, this gift is widely argued today. What was he talking about when he said evangelists? And the definition of evangelist is really simple. <laughs> One who proclaims the gospel. 
In that sense, every Christian better be an evangelist. You ought to be an evangelist. You ought to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what he's speaking of here? I would argue against that. Hodge argues that the evangelists mentioned here were men who were missionaries preaching the gospel to the unreached peoples while the pastor's teachers were the men who were preaching the gospel to the church. I'm not convinced that's what Paul had in mind, but that's, that's a, it could be a plausible argument, right? I mean, they are men who are carrying the gospel to the lost. Missionaries, church planters, isn't that what they do? They share the gospel so that a church can be planted and grown. I kind of agree with Sinclair Ferguson, though. He argues that these evangelists that Paul is speaking of specifically here were those who had close connections to the apostles. Uh, Apostolic lieutenants, maybe, if you will. Um, The word is never applied to, I think, only two people in, in the New Testament. One is Philip, right? He definitely had a connection to the apostles, did he not? He was one of those uh, good men that was set aside, we believe, for the the office of deacon. However, he was also active in, in sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel. You know, his encounter with the eunuch. And the only other time it's mentioned is when Paul exhorts Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And Timothy was representing Paul at a specific church, was he not? Paul sent Timothy to a certain congregation to represent him and to uh, help them get ordered, help the congregation, um, you know, setting forth the, the, what the congregation ought to look like, how they ought to function, the, the, the qualifications of those men who would be set aside as elders, the qualifications of those men who would be set aside as deacons, right? <clears throat> Ferguson writes, an evangelist had a wide-ranging commission to serve alongside or instead of an apostle. These callings belong to the inaugural life of the New Testament church. Apostles and prophets had a foundational office. Evangelists were their deputies. In the very nature of the case, we do not expect these ministers to reappear in the church today. And I... with that definition of evangelist, I would, I I agree with Sinclair Ferguson. Now, can we evangelize? Can we share the gospel? Um, there are men that that call themselves, and I guess women that call themselves evangelists today. That say God has has called them, and and so they go around preaching at, at different places. Uh, by and large, very few of them are actually <clears throat> sent forth by a church. Or in connection with the church. And so that's not a biblical office. Okay. I think all the ministry of the gospel. Is to be in and through and from the church. Now if you take issue with that. We'll, we'll discuss it later. But uh, I believe that's the biblical pattern. Whichever view is correct. Christ gave these men, these evangelists, to the church as a gift. And that brings us to the fourth gift mentioned. And I say four because I group shepherds and teachers in one group. And I think the language here agrees with that, the context. This office of overseer... And those in this office shepherd their local flocks by teaching them the precious doctrinal truths that shine forth from the whole counsel of God's word. In a word, they proclaim Christ. Now, there are some that argue that this shepherd and teacher is separate, that there are those who are called to rule the body, and then there are those who are called to teach In other words, those who would exhort and admonish 
and then those who would teach. And I would argue you can't teach unless you exhort and admonish. And so it's one, one office. Bishop, elder, pastor. Those are all terms that describe the same office. So in Emmanuel Baptist Church, we don't have one pastor and then two co-elders. We have three pastors, three elders, three bishops, three overseers, three shepherds. All of those terms are describing one and the same office. Now I know there are some, some denominations that will have a pastor and then, then we'll have elders. There are some denominations that have ruling elders and teaching elders. We don't, we don't do that here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. We believe that everyone in the office of elder has the same responsibilities, the same authorities. And God has given us a, a very serious charge, very serious responsibility as we look out and care for your souls. And, of course, God has given us a wonderful, loving faithful congregation which we praise God for you and that brings us to the second part the purpose of these gifts we've looked at the gifts and, and, and I think the gifts are important but I think in the context of the passage here more important is the purpose of these gifts more important is the purpose of these gifts. And what are the purpose of these gifts? Christian growth. That's just a really quick summing up, but we're going to expand on that. Christian growth. Paul writes, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In the older English translations of Scripture, James Montgomery Boyce points out that there has been a comma erroneously placed in this passage, which changes the meaning of the passage. If you have the King James Version, you'll notice that the comma is to equip the saints, comma. Right in the middle of the sentence. And then, for the work of the ministry, and then, for the building up of the body of Christ. So by this reading, <laughs> everything's up to the professionals, right? All the work in the church is up to the pastors, there is no other ministry in the church that's not done by the pastors. The pastor does it all. That's not what this passage is saying. And, and the older manuscripts don't, don't, don't agree with that rendering. Boyce writes, The professionals do it all. They have the gifts. They are to use them to all the church's work. The members of the church have no other duty than letting themselves be led, and following their pastors as a docile flock. But, he's, but he also says, but this translation is wrong. And I agree. So the first purpose of these gifts, these church leaders, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Are you called a saint? If you belong to the Lord Jesus, you're a saint, right? So who's to be equipped for the work of ministry? You. Each and every one of you. So what then does this ministry of the saints look like? What is this ministry? Well, we know not everyone's called to the pulpit ministry, right? But what does this ministry look like? And, and, and there could be a myriads of examples. 
But let's look at this. How about an ever-growing love for the Lord Jesus Christ? That's a ministry, right? Ministering to one another. And through Him, a deeper love of our Heavenly Father and a stronger appreciation and obedience to God's Holy Word through the ministry and the guidance and leading of the Holy Spirit. How about this? A love for all the saints. Is that a ministry? How would you minister to one another if you didn't love each other? You wouldn't. What does that look like? Fellowship? Hospitality? Bearing one another's burdens? How about rejoicing? Brother Al and Sister Lynn, we rejoiced with you when you announced the birth of your granddaughter. How about that? Rejoicing together when there's cause for rejoicing. Mourning, grieving together when there's cause for grief. That's bearing one another's burdens. That's a ministry. That's a ministry performed by all the saints. Is it not? How about this? A love for Christ's church. Faithful attendance and participation in all the corporate means of grace. Is that not a ministry? Do you not minister to your brothers and sisters in Christ when you are here present, worshiping God with them? How are you equipped for that? Well, God has given you people, men, to equip you, to teach you, to train you, to guide you for this very work of ministry. How about love for our families? Is that a ministry in the church? Striving for godly families. Striving to, to train your children up in the admonition of the Lord, right? How is that a ministry of the church? Because as the church, we come alongside of you. And we pray for you. And there are those who have taken that path before you who can give you counsel. Who can share their knowledge and experiences with you. That's a ministry of the saints. How about this? Love for the lost. Is that a ministry of the saints? The sharing of our faith with those whom we have opportunity. What, what was one thing that we prayed for this morning during our time of corporate prayer? We prayed for the lost. That's a ministry of the saints. And so the first purpose of these gifts that God has given to His church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And there are many other things we could call ministry of the saints. There are many different things in Scripture that can fall under the category of the ministry of the saints. The second purpose of these gifts that Christ has given to His church combined with the equipped saints who are ministering to each other, okay, you can't lose that point there, you have to see that, is for the building up of the body of Christ. It is not just the pastors who build up the body of Christ through the preaching of the gospel, but it is also through the ministry of the saints that the church is built up. Christ is using these gifts along with His people to build His church. It's not just the pastor's job. Christ doesn't just use the pastors. We are all, everyone, brick and mortar in this holy temple that is being built by Christ Jesus himself to be a temple unto our God. So it is in combination of the gifts that Christ has given to his church along with the ministry of the saints that he is using to build his church and to further his kingdom and to advance it. And this will continue until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood. In other words, this is for our own good. This is for our own good. God has given these gifts to us for our own good. Paul puts it in the negative and then and in the positive in verses 14 through 16 
for our own good. It's for our protection. Paul writes, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so, in the negative, Paul says, this is for our own good. It, it prevents something, right? It prevents us from being uh, uh, carried off into heresy or, or maybe even to just serious error. As we look at our society today, what do we see? People influenced by everything. Mm-hmm. Social media, television, politics. All of which is based most of the time on just somebody's opinion. And so if it's somebody's opinion, that must make it fact and therefore I'm influenced by it, right? We see that. I mean, look at society. Look around you. That can happen in the church. And it does happen in the church. Where we are influenced by... Uh, there's, our technology is amazing. It's amazing. And it's a blessing in many ways. But it's also a curse. Because anybody, and I mean anybody, can start a blog... If you, well, I'll take that back. I couldn't. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> but if I had someone to know how to do it, I could tell them what to write. <laughs> but you get the point. Just because somebody puts it out there on the social media, on the internet, on television, doesn't make it fact. And so there are a lot of old heresies that have been placed in new wrappings that are out there and attacking the church even now. And so we got to be aware of that. That's one of the reasons why we here at Emmanuel Baptist Church hold to a historic confession of faith. Amen. That document has been good for hundreds of years. There's no reason to rewrite it and change it and update it and make it sound like it's modern. Every church that does that, it seems, varies farther and farther and farther and farther away from the meaning of the original documents, Right? And consequently, by doing that, they veer farther and farther from the truths of Scripture. But God gave us gifts to the church to prevent that. To prevent us from being tossed about by every wind of doctrine. I'm sure when Paul was writing this too, he he was remembering that awful, terrible storm in that ship for how long? Weeks? When they were blown about (laughs) at the mercy of the wind. And he was taking that vivid image and he was applying it spiritually to the church. Paul has experienced that himself. He hated the church. And he persecuted it. Why? Because his peers hated the church and persecuted it. He was influenced by them. He saw how easily people could be influenced. Remember at Lystra? They thought he and Barnabas were gods and they were going to worship him one moment and the next they were convinced by some sinful Jews that they needed to be stoned. And so they stoned him and left him for dead. He had personally experienced the fickle nature and how easily people are are tossed about and influenced by others. He says, no, God has given gifts to his church to prevent this. It's for your protection. But it's also for your edification. It's also for your edification. It's for the building up of the body. It's, it's to strengthen you theologically, spiritually, doctrinally. We talked about that this morning in our, our Bible study. Ferguson writes, the prolonged, intensive, faithful exposition of God's word delivers us from immaturity. And and I know we don't want to just take a man's word for it. Let's see what the psalmist says. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 
Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it has ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditations. Psalm 119, 97-99. God has given these gifts to His church for our protection and for our progressive sanctification, which we see a picture of that in verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint in which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, he had to note that, okay? Take special note of that. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In stark contrast, Paul says, we are not to be tossed about, but we are to be built up. In other words, there's strength in numbers. Remember, the theme of this passage is what? Unity. There is strength in numbers. We stand together on the firm doctrines of Scripture, being faithful to the faith once delivered to all the saints, so that we are not harmed by the evil one, but that we are together, and each as we are together, we stand firm in Christ. We stand strong in Christ. And that's what these gifts are given to the church for. For our safety, for our edification, for our sanctification. And one day, which it all will culminate in our glorification. But quick summary. In our passage today, we have seen that Christ does in fact love His church. And the, and the proof in the pudding is that He gives gifts to His church. But these, these are not just lavish, extravagant gifts that sit on a shelf somewhere just to say you got gifts. But these are gifts that Christ gives to His church for a purpose. And that purpose is for her protection and for her safekeeping and for her building up and ultimately for His glory. Dear saints, as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, Let us cherish His gifts and let us cherish one another. Let us live our lives together in a way that honors Christ our King and brings glory to our triune God. Outside of Jesus, we are nothing. In Him, we find true completion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your gifts, Lord Jesus, that you have given to your church. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us Christ so that he too could give gifts to those that he loves. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying this word to our lives. Would you do so richly here this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper? Would you help us to magnify Christ and make much of him? And it's my prayer, Holy Father, that each and every person here this morning is now and will be forever unified in the bond of Christian unity in Christ Jesus. For it's in His holy name I pray. Amen. You take now the hymns of grace and stand and sing with me hymn number 112.
seated. One of the corporate and public means of grace that Christ has given to His church is the Lord's Supper. If you're visiting with us here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, we do practice an open uh, yet guarded um, communion. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have united to Christ by faith, uh, and you are a member in good standing of your church, um, we invite you to partake with us. However, if, if you are not in good standing with your church, and, and I say that if you have neglected the means of grace at your church, uh, then you need to refrain from uh, partaking with us because you uh, are, haven't been faithful to your covenant commitment. This is a serious thing. We are told in Scripture that this can be taken in an unworthy manner. Uh, the first unworthy manner would be that you are not a believer at all. And therefore, partaking of this, you're, you're making light of the Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. Uh, you're actually despising Him if you're not a believer. So I would say, if you haven't united to Christ in faith, please do not take this. Another unworthy manner that we can approach this is if we live our lives in unrepented of sin. This ordinance doesn't cleanse you. It doesn't give you forgiveness. It doesn't somehow uh, uh, absolve you of your guilt. If you are living in unrepented of sin, you need to go to Christ and repent of your sin. Christ didn't die so that you could keep sinning. He died to pay for your sins. So as an act of faith in uniting to Christ, you, you repent of your sins. And now, does that mean that you have to be sinless to partake of this? No. If that was the case, we wouldn't even bother putting it out. I'm not sinless. You're not sinless. Now, we, we come in a worthy manner, in the worth of Christ, knowing that Christ shed His blood and had His body broken for us to pay the penalty for our sins. And so we come knowing that His spilled blood and His broken body was because of what we have done. It's the penalty that we deserve. But we also come in faith knowing that we have forgiveness in Him. And when we sin, the Bible says we have an advocate with the Father. And if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so that's how we approach the table. Begging for the forgiveness of Christ and praising God for the forgiveness we find at the foot of the cross. And we also look at these elements and we remember what Christ endured for us. As, and as horrible as the physical pain and suffering was, that's not what bought our forgiveness. It was Christ's spiritual suffering under the wrath of God that purchased our freedom. And so we approach this table looking only to Christ and no other. If you approach in that sense, you are approaching in a worthy manner. The Apostle Paul writing for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it 
in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. At this time, we'll start over here. If you would just work your way through and get the elements. The juice is on this side. The wine is on this side. Uh, they're labeled if you have any questions. If you would get the elements and return to your seat. And once everyone is seated again, we will uh, partake of these elements. Brother Ryan, would you offer a prayer to the Lord in thanksgiving for his broken body? Let's pray. Holy Fathers, we come to this most solemn and joyful ordinance. We are reminded of the words of Christ, who said, Take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Father, as we take the bread and eat it, we are mindful that the body of Christ was crushed by the wrath of Almighty God. And it was for us, for believers, and that your wrath was propitiated. And there is not an ember of it remaining against your people. Holy Fathers, we partake of this most holy ordinance. We pray that mm. we would stir ourselves up to a vigorous exercise of our graces. That we would feed upon Christ and Him crucified by faith. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your great love for us in Christ Jesus, your Son. It is in His exalted name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Pastor Thomas, would you offer a word of thanks to the Lord for His spilled blood? Holy Lord, we confess that oftentimes our assurance is tossed about. Sometimes it's terribly weakened and perhaps even absent. And we're so thankful that in your great wisdom and love for your church, that you have given this ordinance. Yes. A declaration of the gospel. That we do not stand in our own righteousness. That we do have remaining sin. That we can never keep your law perfectly enough, good enough, to stand in a justified and righteous position before your throne. But we come through Christ and we come through His sacrifice. And even now as we hold the cup, we hold the sign of the new covenant of the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. Knowing that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But also realizing that through the blood of Christ, the filthiest of sin can be washed away, cleansed, hidden, as it were, from your almighty omniscience. So we receive this cup today, testifying that it is Christ in Christ alone, that it's in him that we stand and have our righteousness. So we thank you for your goodness to us, to help us grow in faith and love and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This is my this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us remember what Christ has done for us. Let us remember that he didn't die so that we could continue sinning, but he died to cleanse us and save us from our sins. And so let's live our lives in such a way that glorifies him. And when we sin, let's remember that he is our advocate with the Father. And we confess to him our sins and we find forgiveness in Christ alone. If you'd stand now for the benediction and receive it, and then we will close by singing the doxology. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>